please uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. We've uh, reached the end of Paul's letter uh, to the church at Philippi, and so we'll be looking at verses 10 uh, to 23 this evening. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's ask for God's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we want to thank you for it. We thank you for the gift that we have of having Bibles and such easy access to your word that we can open it and we can hear you speak to your people. And Jesus, we pray that you would do that now this evening, that you would be speaking to us, and yet that your Holy Spirit would be uh, taking your word and you would be helping us to apply it and to submit to it and to delight in it. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, this marks the conclusion of our study together in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as hopefully you've seen and noticed, Uh, This letter is a joyful and appreciative letter. Paul, who's in prison uh, because of his uh, fervent ministry of of preaching Jesus and all that he's done, he's writing to this uh, church that he helped start to instruct them, uh, but also uh, he has the specific goal of helping them to find joy in Jesus. And so in this letter, uh, Paul speaks of finding uh, joy in their ministry partnership and and in seeing the gospel advance. He speaks of the joy that comes as as the church experiences a unity through a humility produced by the gospel. He speaks of having joy in the gospel, which gives us confidence before God as we uh, receive the righteousness that comes from God um, through faith in Christ. And he spoke of of joy as as we grow in Christ-likeness and grow in holiness. Well, in our passage this evening, Paul concludes this letter uh, by giving us one final source of joy in the Christian life. And he speaks of the joy that comes from gospel-advancing generosity. 
Now, it's true that Paul uh, writes this as someone who's receiving uh, the generosity. He's on, on the, the, the end of the gift, if you will. He's received the gift. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to assist him in his ministry as he was in prison, but they also sent Epaphroditus with a financial gift that was intended to support Paul in his ministry. And yet this passage will speak not only to how we are to respond to the gifts that God gives us, but also how we can find joy in giving gifts to others to support the work of gospel ministry. We might say it this way, that this passage addresses our hearts and it addresses our wallets as it relates to the money that God has entrusted us with. And contrary to our normal impulses, when it comes to our money, Paul helps us to see that we will find joy not in being uh, driven by need or not uh, being driven by greed. Instead, we can find joy in the partnerships that our giving shows and the profit and pleasure that our giving brings. So we're going to look at these three reasons that gospel uh, advancing generosity brings joy, partnership, profit, and pleasure. But first, we need to see some qualifications. I wonder if you've uh, ever received a gift that made you really excited, like really excited. I have. Uh, I remember uh, thinking this gift was going to be too expensive. It was $30. There was no way I was going to get it. Uh, It seemed more than I could deserve. Uh, Sure, my cousin had it, uh, but he lived in America where these things were cheaper and like there was no way I could expect uh, to get this gift. It was the Star Wars Essential Guide to Characters first edition. I I was so hoping that I would get this And when I unwrapped that thing for Christmas, uh, it was the best Christmas ever. I wonder if you've ever received a gift that has filled you with pure joy. Well, that was Paul's response to receiving this financial gift from the Philippians. It was pure joy as he himself described. He says in our passage, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. In fact, in all the New Testament, uh, this is the only place where Paul uses this phrasing of rejoicing greatly. Now, we might raise an eyebrow when Paul uh, does this, when we hear of his passionate response to this gift, because after all, Paul in this letter has said, well, uh, he rejoices that the gospel is, is proclaimed and Christ is, is preached, and he's rejoiced that the Philippians are, are finding uh, or making progress in the faith. But he rejoices greatly when the check comes in the mail. You might say, really, Paul? What's up with that? Maybe uh, those who uh, were were on the receiving end of this letter may have been tempted when they heard uh, Paul first say this, that they were tempted to conclude that Paul wasn't much different than those public orators in, in his day who were quite pleased to pocket a nice paycheck for their ear pleasing addresses. Could it be that Paul's true colors, the green of avarice, was coming out? Well, I don't think so. We know a little bit of of Paul's biography. I think that that speaks against such a conclusion. Paul's in prison for the gospel. Uh, Besides this, we know that he endured uh, great suffering uh, for the message and for the person he was preaching. Where Paul could have leaned on the generosity of others, uh, he had been ready to take up a trade. He, had, uh, he was a tent maker, and he did that to relieve the responsibility of, of others uh, so that they wouldn't have to compensate him 
though uh, that was his right to expect. In fact, knowing that some might be tempted to draw this conclusion, that Paul was maybe uh, driven by an inappropriate desire for gain, we can notice how in this passage, Paul is careful to qualify his reasons for this joyful response to their gift. In this passage, we see that Paul gives us three negative statements that are meant to say, I rejoice greatly, but I don't want you to think I rejoice for this reason, or I don't want you to think this. The first qualification that Paul makes is that he doesn't want the Philippians to think that he's felt neglected by them. When he says, I rejoice greatly that at length you uh, revived your concern for me, it's not a a shot at the Philippians. He's not sort of a passive-aggressive dig like, oh, finally you remembered I'm here in chains. But he says, "You, you were concerned about me, but you didn't have the opportunity to show it. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate on on why they didn't have the opportunity. Various reasons have been speculated. Uh, But Paul's first concern is to say, this joyful response was not because I felt neglected uh, by you, not because I felt like you were depriving me of something that I was entitled to. Secondly, Paul qualifies the reason for his exceeding joy by saying it was not because he was in need. In other words, Paul is saying, my great joy was not because I lacked something. Now, these are are very famous verses on the topic of contentment. Many sermons have been preached on them, and and there are great great verses to to meditate on uh, for this topic. But we want to ask ourselves, why does Paul give us these verses on contentment here? Contentment is not the main theme of what Paul's writing in our passage. They're supporting, supporting the main theme, but they're not the main theme. He speaks of contentment to establish why their gift was so joy-producing. But think for a minute, where is Paul when he writes this? He's in prison. His future is, relatively speaking, uh, in one sense at least, uncertain. His mobility is limited. And yet Paul says he has learned to be content. The word that Paul uses here for contentment uh, uh, is found here in the New Testament. There's some root words found elsewhere, but, but this exact word is found only here. But in the wider literature in, in Paul's day, the term was used uh, to speak of being self-sufficient. Some of the philosophers in, in Paul's day uh, would use the term to speak of being independent or sort of detached from, from um, uh, material needs. They weren't dependent on anyone or anything. They were freed from a reliance upon others. Well, when Paul adopts this word, he doesn't adopt its contemporary meaning uncritically. Instead, he uses it with a specifically Christian understanding. Unlike his contemporaries, Paul's not saying here uh, that that he's got enough strength or enough ability uh, in and of himself to weather the ups and downs of life. This would go against what Paul's said so far in his letter, right? This, this sense of stoic uh, self-sufficiency is also ruled out when we look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse, of course, uh, many people have understood it, uh, that it's going to look good on a coffee mug, right? Or it's a good verse to write on your football cleats. But it's not going to help when you try out for the football team, 130 pounds soaking wet, 
or when you apply for a mortgage with really bad credit, you can't like push the papers back over the table and say, look again, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, right? That's not, that's not going to work. The declaration that he can do all things is qualified by the context, specifically verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, I think that the New International Version's translation is, is helpful because it says, I can do all this meaning I can endure plenty and hunger, abundance and need through him, that is, through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says that he can do all things, whether that's being brought low or whether that's being lifted high through Christ. Now, Christian contentment, specifically Christian contentment, doesn't come as we recognize our inner self-sufficiency, but it comes as, as we draw upon the strength that comes from outside of us as we're united to the living Christ. It's this ongoing, vibrant relationship as we trust in Jesus, which satisfies Paul and enables him to endure every circumstance that he's brought into. Now, Paul would agree that contentment uh, comes as we pry ourselves uh, off of of attachment to created things in one sense, weaning ourselves off the things of the world. But he says this can only be done as we first come to know the all-sufficiency of God. And this is not an attitude that we immediately download the moment that we're converted, but it's a lesson, Paul says, that that he's learned and that we learn uh, as we grow gradually in the Christian life. And we need to continue to apply ourselves to learning this lesson. But the point here is that Paul's joy does not come from sensing that there were things he didn't have and now says, okay, well, now I can have them. All the joy that he found in the gift didn't come from him struggling with satisfaction while he was in prison because he had learned to be content whatever the circumstances. We need to to, to realize that his joy comes from something or somewhere else. The third negation or qualification we see to Paul's joyful thanks is found in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. In other words, uh, though he rejoiced at receiving their gift, Paul's joy did not spring from the, the gift of financial support itself. So Paul makes a distinction between uh, the gift which he received, he's grateful for that, and what his heart is really after. It wasn't the money that, that produced this great joy in Paul. Paul wasn't motivated by greed or gain. And as we consider, Paul, how careful he is to distinguish what actually brought him joy in receiving this gift, I think that that, that's instructive for us as we think about how do we use the resources that God gives us? Because it shows us that there are ways that we can receive the the blessings and resources that come from God in a way that are in error or misguided. We can think about the resources that God supplies us through our job or through the generosity of others or through uh, uh, other providential means. We can think about those things incorrectly. We can be motivated by entitlement, or discontent, or greed. And there's applications for us both, I think, as a, as a church, but also as individual Christians. Right? As, a, as a church, as we, we think about our, our finances together, it's possible uh, to think, oh, if only we could be like that church over there. If only we had more, we could do more things, be more like them. Uh, we could have a, a better reputation. We could be more savvy. Right? We want to do more. If only we had a little bit more in the general fund, we'd feel a little bit more secure. 
Or maybe we're just motivated by, we just need money to keep the lights on. There's all sorts of, of, of ways that we can be misguided in our motivations. And this isn't to say that having a large church budget is wrong, just like being rich is not uh, inherently wrong. Rather, it's to point at the possibility that behind, uh, behind our response to these, these gifts is a wrong attitude, that, that we can get fixated on the things themselves and not the spiritual realities that surround them. And this, of course, challenges us on a personal level as well. As God provides for us in, in, in different ways. How do we respond when our paycheck lands in the bank or the tax return comes back? What's motivating the positive feelings that come as you, you check your, your bank statement on your phone? Right? It, it are, is what's producing that joy a sense of, of need? I, I need something in order to be happy. Is it, is it a desire to have the thing itself? That long-awaited renovation, perhaps, the new car, the security that income provides? Do we view our money as, as, as that which is what we deserve? It's not wrong to plan for retirement. It's not wrong to, to own a cottage or buy a new car. But Paul challenges us to examine our motivations. Are we finding our joy or satisfaction in the, 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 the stuff itself, in the provision of the stuff? Are we driven by discontentment? Are we driven by greed? But if Paul doesn't rejoice in the, the gift itself, why does he rejoice? What about the Philippians' generosity caused Paul, as he's sitting in this prison cell, uh, to just have joy spill up within him when Epaphroditus came in? We're going to look at, at the three reasons that I told you that Paul greatly rejoices. And as we do that, I think we're going to learn something about how we can find joy in gospel uh, giving to gospel advancing causes. So again, those, those points were partnership, profit, and pleasure. First, partnership. Paul rejoiced at receiving the gift because it was a clear display of the partnership that he had with the Philippians for the gospel. In verse 14, Paul says, it was good of you to share my trouble. The idea here is, is actually an idea that's been repeated a number of times throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it's this idea that the Philippians are partners with, God, with Paul for the sake of the gospel. He has a fellowship with the Philippians uh, uh, in gospel ministry. So the Philippians, even though that, uh, they were in Philippi, they were, were partners with Paul. It wasn't just the, the pastor or missionary doing his work over there, but, the, but they were engaged in the work with him. They had fellowship with him in his ministry and his sufferings. Now, this partnership was not only expressed in this latest gift. Paul says it was a partnership that dated uh, way back, 10 years prior, uh, to shortly after the gospel took root in Philippi. You might remember that Paul uh, went to, to Philippi. Uh, he meets some women who are praying there. He, he, uh, there's, uh, God blesses his ministry. There's some conversions. He ends up spending a short time in, in prison, uh, and then he has to leave. And he leaves for Thessalonica, which is a city of about, about 100 miles away. And already then, Paul says... The Philippians, uh, uh, as soon as Paul left, they were eager to support him in his ministry. He had barely left town, and this fledgling, fledgling congregation is already wondering, how can we support the work of the gospel that God is doing through Paul? But their partnership didn't stop there. In Acts 18, after Paul had gone ahead to uh, Corinth, 
Silas and Timothy come to Paul from Philippi, bringing yet another gift that enabled Paul to minister freely in Corinth and not uh, rely upon or, or burden the Corinthians. No other church, Paul says, has, had come alongside him like the Philippians. They had uniquely and repeatedly stood with Paul, partnering with him to make sure that the gospel could go forth. And we should notice here that there's a, a mutuality that's involved here. The Philippians weren't missionaries in the sense that Paul was. They didn't go out. They weren't sent out. They continued to minister in their community, telling people about Jesus, even amidst great adversity. Uh, but even as they didn't go, they played a real and meaningful role in seeing the worship of Jesus go out to new parts of the world. And this, Paul says, this was a real encouragement to him. As, as even though they were separated by distance, uh, this communicated uh, the sense to Paul that they were united together, shoulder to shoulder, seeing the gospel go forward, the great commission fulfilled. So when we support our missionaries, when we support church planners and other gospel advancing work, this should be a great source of joy for us. Our giving is a visible representation of our partnership with men and women who have, have left their homes, left uh, what was familiar to them, and they've gone as our representatives to establish gospel outposts in areas that we wouldn't otherwise travel to. Our giving is a, a manifestation, it's a display of the connection, of the partnership that we have in Christ already, and it's, it's as if we're there in some sense. We're supporters of the cause. Secondly, Paul finds joy in the profit of their gift. But it's not the profit that Paul sees himself uh, getting, but the profit to the Philippians. And it's not a profitability in terms of dollars and cents, but in terms of spiritual return on investment. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, verse 17. By their gift, these believers, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, they weren't earning their way into acceptance with God. Paul said in chapter 3 that our good works don't earn our standing uh, with God. We want to rightly defend the gracious character of our salvation. And yet Paul, along with the rest of Scripture, makes clear that God does graciously reward the deeds of the people whom he freely saves. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that your heavenly Father will reward those who give in secret to those who are in need. And we can go elsewhere in Scripture to make this point. But even this reward is built upon a foundation of grace. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, uh, he says that God freely provides the financial resources that we have enabling us to give, and he provides the final spiritual harvest, which comes from our giving. So the, the means and the end of our giving are God's gift, and yet God is, is pleased graciously to reward our faithfulness. Now, this is consistent with what Paul's saying in, in our passage tonight. Joy welled up within Paul as he saw grace at work in the Philippians, moving them to give, and this, this gift would result in their spiritual benefit, both now in, in, in the present, but also on the day of Jesus Christ. He was glad with the prospect that the Philippians were making an investment that God would ensure would accrue rich interest for them. Now, is that how you think about the offering plate when it comes past on Sunday? 
By faith, do you view this act of giving as a spiritual investment? One pastor uh, that I've, I've read described the church's giving and its budget as an investment in a spiritual mutual fund. So when you and I give and we're partnering with other Christians for the advancement of uh, the gospel, uh, but we're also making a spiritual investment that will yield a generous return on investment. William Hendrickson says that in this life, God uses our investment to produce joy in us and joy in others. He uses it to, to strengthen our assurance, to tighten the bonds of Christian fellowship, to give us a clear conscience in the matter of our giving, and to give us a greater appreciation for God's work here and around the world. But even more we can add to that is the expectation that when we die and we stand before the Lord at the great judgment, we'll receive a reward, a condemnation, a commendation rather, according to our generosity. And so Paul rejoices in the expected benefit that will accrue to the Philippians because of their gospel-driven generosity. Now, if we adopt the apostles' outlook, we too can find joy in our giving, knowing that, as the author of Hebrews says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints. Finally, pleasure is the third reason that the Philippians' gift is such a joyful thing. Their offering will not only be rewarded by God, but it's pleasing to God. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Verse 18. Paul was pleased with their gift because God was. He switches out of the, the commercial investment language that he was using in verse 17, and here he picks up the language of sacrifice from the Old Testament. If you uh, flip back in your Bibles to Genesis 8, uh, you might remember the story of Noah. And Noah, God brings Noah and his family through the flood, and when he's finally let out of, out of the ark, he places his feet uh, down on solid ground for the first time in a long time. And maybe you can imagine how good uh, that would feel. Right? What would you do first? You know, maybe go for a walk, uh, maybe take a, a, a warm bath, uh, maybe grab something to eat. But Genesis 8 tells us that Noah built an altar to the Lord and he sacrificed some animals from the ark to the Lord. He burns these animals on the, on the altar and scripture says that the smell of this roasting meat was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I think it might be hard for some of us to understand what it means or what it looks like for God to take pleasure in something. When we're delighted in something, uh, there's sort of visible cues that that's the case. We maybe uh, rub our hands together in, in, in gladness. We uh, might lick our lips. We might smile or do any number of things. But what's it like for God to be, to be pleased? Well, we can only understand that by way of, of analogy, and, and this analogy comes to us from Scripture, but I think it's something that most of us can relate to. So I want you to fast forward three months uh, from now. 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you walk into your neighbor's back, backyard by his invitation and you smell the beef brisket on the Traeger 780 grill with hickory pellets and you're just, oh man, right? Just think about it now. I'm starting to salivate, right? You take that deep breath in, your brain registers delight and you exhale with a smile. Genuine pleasure. Well, in an analogous way, not a perfect way, but in an analog analogous way, 
we're to understand that Noah's sacrifice offered in faith and out of love to God for his deliverance was similarly pleasing to the Lord. It's as if the Lord takes in a deep breath and he's filled with delight and he exhales with a smile. Now, as we read our, through our Bibles, we discover that there's been an end made to this type of sacrifice. We don't have any altars on which we sacrifice uh, animals uh, uh, here at, at harvest. It's not planned for the building project at all. And that's because Jesus, the Son of God, came for sinners and offered up his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. And this, the Bible tells us, is the ultimate fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's the ultimate sacrifice in the sense that no other sacrifice was perfect. No other sacrifice was without any trace of sin like he was. Uh, And no other sacrifice could reconcile us to God like he did. In this sense, it was the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin that the book of Hebrews talks about. And yet at the same time, embracing that once-for-all sacrifice for sin, the New Testament still speaks of sacrifices which we make to God. Not to secure our pardon before God, but to give thanks for it. The author of Hebrews says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Offered in faith to God, our generosity to those who are in need, both spiritual need but also physical need, is pleasing to the Lord. Friends, God is pleased by your faith-filled generosity in seeing the gospel advanced and the Great Commission fulfilled. Just as we're told that there's joy in heaven when a sinner repents, so there's pleasure in God when you give generously in faith to see the gospel go out because you love Jesus. You love what he's done for you. You want to see others caught up in that great story of salvation too. Every Sunday, we take an offering that funds the ministries that we do here together at Harvest, but also the ministry that's done through our denomination It supports church planning efforts in in North America. It supports missionary efforts that take place around the world. Next week, as we mentioned, we're scheduled to take uh, an offering for our missionaries in Ukraine. Maybe some of you have given to that already. But when we give to these causes, we're not just checking another box off our, our list of expected Christian duties. When we do that, it's an expression of our fellowship with our, our fellow believers as they're laboring with them for the sake of the gospel. It's a spiritual investment in faith that God uh, will redound to our credit. But third, and most of all, when done as an act of faith, in gratitude to God for the salvation that he's given us in Jesus, it pleases your heavenly Father. Generous, faith-filled giving for the sake of gospel advancement is not some interruption in the service that allows your mind to rest before the sermon. It's an act of partnership. It's an investment, and it's pleasing, uh, a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Now, understanding uh, it this way, what could keep us from seeking to eagerly grow in this joy-eliciting act of giving to gospel advancement? It's as if Paul anticipates one of our concerns. Can I really be expected to give when I have an unconscionable amount of student debt? 
or when I've got a mortgage to pay, or when things are just a little tighter and inflation's getting up and gas prices are high, right? Can I just wait till things are a little bit more secure? I remember quite vividly sitting in uh, church in, uh, on one Sunday as a teenager. I'd slid into the back row uh, with my friends. And uh, as the offering plate was being passed around, this kindly, well-intentioned uh, Dutch lady uh, turns to us and says, uh, you don't have to give to this right now. Just wait till you're a bit older. Now, charitably, I think that she just saw some cash-strapped teenagers and she wanted to relieve us of the burden, as, as she saw, uh, of giving to this. But with this text in view, there's at least two problems with her response. First, it was short-sighted because it would deprive us of participating in this act of grace which pleases God and which we could be rewarded for as we give in faith. But secondly, it misses out on the promise that we see in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians were not a wealthy congregation. Paul says to the Corinthians that they gave out of their extreme poverty. But they would not be losers for their generosity to the cause of the gospel. Written from a prison cell, this uh, here in, in verse 19, it's not a promise that every wish will be granted or that hardship will be avoided. But it's the promise that in every circumstance, God will supply what we need to be satisfied in him and to live for him. As he says elsewhere, when he writes uh, to the Corinthians, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency or all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's no miserly promise that God gives us here. He invites us to give generously, to give ambitiously, to give joyfully, to the advance of the gospel, motivated by gospel partnerships, motivated by our promised reward, motivated by the pleasure of God. And as we do this, as believers who are in Christ Jesus, he will move to meet our needs, our spiritual needs, but also our material needs, so that we will have what we need to glorify him. And you'll do this, he says, in a way that accords with his glorious riches. Think about it this way. God will not send us forth without supplying us with what we need to obey him. Now, that might take any number of forms. That might just look like groceries on the doorstep. It might look like finding the right job. It might be a, a supernatural quiet contentment that you wouldn't otherwise expect. It might be a, a, a surprising and generous gift. It might be a greater freedom from worldly attachment than, than you would have expected. But there's a promise here. Take the Lord up on it. Hold him to it. A missionary uh, to Turkey in the 19th century was asked one time how he could give so much when he had so little. And he answered, I keep shoveling it over to the Lord and he keeps shoveling it back to me, but he's got a bigger shovel. That captures the sentiment of verse 19. It doesn't mean that if you sow $5, God will sow $50 back to you as some erroneously teach. But it does say that God provides for us, that he knows what we need, and that he will move to generously meet us as we obey him and proceed in faith. So we're invited in this text to find joy in Jesus as we give in faith to see his name, his works, his cause lifted up throughout the world. And we can do so knowing that as we give, the Lord will gloriously supply all that we need 
in Christ Jesus. And this to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this letter uh, to the Philippian church and for the benefit and instruction that it gives to us and for the comfort that we can have in it and the joy that uh, we're uh, guided to through it. And Lord, we thank you for your rich provision uh, to us, first in the gospel, gospel, but also, Lord, in so many other things. Your kindness is just incredibly abundant and obvious. And so, Lord, we ask that, first of all, you would give us contentment, that we might be freed from, um, uh, Lord, just being unduly attached to the gifts that you've given to us, uh, that, that we would um, be satisfied with where you providentially lead us, that we wouldn't be enslaved to our stuff, but that, Lord, being granted this contentment, we might be able to give freely to the causes that will see Jesus lifted up and exalted throughout the world. We ask, Lord, that you would multiply the fruitfulness of our gifts as you move us to generosity. We pray that you would bless us with the gift of joy as we grow in this grace. And Lord, we pray that you would give joy in the gospel to those who receive our gifts and to those that we partner with for the sake of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I ask that you please uh, stand as we sing our closing song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.
Our benediction is uh, taken from Paul's closing words in this letter. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.